Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 205, The War Behind the War. Last time, the British found out, when World War II broke out, that their anti-submarine tactics needed to be brought up to date if American supplies were going to reach British soil. Thus, the Wrens of the Western Approaches Tactical Unit were brought together and were expected to help get supply ships to Old Blighty while giving their escorts an advantage in the Battle of the Atlantic. At the moment, getting supplies to the home island was equal to that of getting supplies to the various holdout territories, few they may be. One was Malta, another was Gibraltar, and of course there was North Africa and the Middle East. But there were only so many tankers or merchantmen and escorts. Those the Admiralty had, they needed to hold on to for the next mission. For the foreseeable future, there would always be a next mission. When we last left Convoy HG-76, the Wrens were still figuring out new tactics. Until then, those already established were pitted against the German subs and what Karl Donitz could come up with, namely his wolf packs. The latest victim was the British destroyer HMS Stanley. It took only 12 minutes to go below forever. Back to the story. It was the morning of December 19, 1941. Both sides have lost men and equipment. For the Allies, it was mostly merchantmen, but a few escorts were lost as well. For the Axis, it was a number of German and Italian planes, but these were just the opening moves. In truth, Donitz wanted the British carrier Audacity sunk, and he was willing to lose a sub or two to get the job done. Thus, more were ordered to catch up to the convoy. At 7.30 a.m., still December 19th, a condor was detected to be following the convoy. A martlet lifted off of Audacity and chased her away. The martlet stayed in the air as long as her fuel would allow to keep that condor and any other companions away. Later that day, another martlet spotted two U-boats on the surface and, like the condor, were simply following and reporting any course changes. The martlet dove down to get the attention of the two subs while the convoy made an emergency turn. Hopefully together, these two moves would lose the subs. Like the martlet before this one, she stayed in the air, having chased away the adversaries as long as her fuel would let her. No sense in letting up on the hunters. Still, the aggressors stayed in close with U-107 staying within visual range of the convoy, while the wolf pack kept in touch with U-107. And as we have covered, three more subs, U-71, 567, and 751 were on their way and would catch up to the convoy soon. On December 21st, the weather turned worse. No surprise there, but it limited the number of planes the Audacity could keep up in the air due to the dangerous winds. That day, only three martlets managed to take off, but they still patrolled the skies. After the last fighter landed, the ship's commander ordered her out of the convoy to head starboard for about 10 nautical miles. Problem was, there were so many U-boats around, the convoy had to be protected, so the Audacity went out alone. The why of this move is still unclear, and in the future, the Admiralty would rule that no escort left the convoy, for mutual protection was the whole point. 
Either way, at 8.33 p.m., still December 21st, a merchantman near the back of the convoy was hit by U-751. Standard practice dictated that the other ships shoot up flares, or snowflakes, to help, one, spot the sub, and two, help locate survivors. But there are always unintended consequences. The sudden light in the night sky showed some of the other nearby subs exactly where Audacity was. As U-567 was the closest to the escort carrier, she let loose a torpedo at 8.37 p.m. The fish struck true, and the Audacity began to sink at her stern. Now taking advantage of the confusion, U-751 crept in and put two more torpedoes into the carrier. The result was a large explosion as aviation fuel was ignited. That blew off her bow. Now the carrier was starting to sink at the head. She, the Audacity, would be gone by 10.10 p.m., taking 73 lives with her. As glorious as it was to sink an enemy carrier, the convoy was still on the move, bringing supplies to the British. The wolf pack closed in. Just after midnight at 12.40 a.m., now December 22nd, the destroyer HMS Deptford had been chasing around the subs trying to get a contact, and finally did, which led to the destroyer sinking U-567. The destroyer's ASDIC had picked up the sub two hours previous, but the escort's commander was not going to lose this one, even if he had to play cat and mouse, which he did. But the result was one less sub for the convoy to worry about. Unfortunately, as the British escorts were dashing around, but trying to keep quiet, the Deptford ended up ramming into the sloop HMS Stork. Both ships were now damaged. Soon after this, U-67 fired at a merchantman that had a catapult to throw off scout planes, hence its value. Fortunately, the U-boat missed. As the sun rose on December 22nd, the reinforcements for both sides started to arrive. As the convoy sailed on, getting ever closer to the home island, and more importantly, getting ever closer to land-based air cover, U-71 and U-751 stayed close, with U-125 about to join them. The latter was on her way to the American East Coast, but Donitz ordered her to join in on the attack. The Admiral had much invested in this, professionally and politically. As for the Allies, the destroyers HMS Vanquisher and Witch were soon on the scene. Even better, at 10.45 a.m., a consolidated Liberator, an American heavy bomber from 120 Squadron of the 19th Group Coastal Command at RAF Nuts Corner in Northern Ireland, arrived over the convoy. Finally, she had a stronger though limited, air umbrella. And it's a good thing that the bomber showed up, for her crew spotted, right away, a Falk Wolf Condor keeping tabs on the ships below. As this bomber had, though not all did, a pair of 50 caliber M2 Browning machine guns, the Condor soon was heading back to France. With that done, the Liberator stayed over the convoy, which was on its last leg before reaching Scotland. That afternoon, one of the subs raised its conning tower above the waves, but the Liberator encouraged her to dive again with her fifty cal. 
At 4.20 p.m., the Liberator was switched out for another one from Nuts Corner. Now just under 863 miles or 1,389 kilometers away. With the second Liberator on duty, and it was getting dark, the remaining subs made their move. Coming to the surface to save on diesel fuel, three subs approached the convoy. The question was always of timing and position. When those two things go right for a sub, there's almost nothing they cannot achieve. But before the three surfaced subs could move very far, the Liberator flew over them, having spotted them and surely was now contacting the convoy. With their opening move ruined, the subs submerged and sought another approach. Problem was, time was ticking away and the convoy was getting ever closer to continuous air support. Tonight had to be the night, except it wasn't. The subs never got in close enough to take a real shot. As the sun rose on December 23rd, convoy HG-76 was within North Ireland's air umbrella. For a sub to attack now was inviting death after a horrific chase. That same day, December 23rd, Admiral Donitz, who had lost five subs to this convoy, but managed to sink the carrier Audacity and three other ships, merchantmen and escorts, called off his wolf pack. The exchange rate was not worth it or sustainable. U-boats 67, 107, 108, and 751 returned to France. They would have to wait for the next convoy. As the subs sailed away, 30 merchantmen arrived in Scotland. The commander of this group, the 36th, was Frederick John Johnny Walker. Yes, after the brand of whiskey, who was now considered an expert at anti-submarine warfare. As for Admiral Donitz, he hid the loss of his five subs from Berlin and his own men for as long as he could, i.e. several weeks. But before returning to the story of the Wren of the Western Approaches tactical unit, we have to see how they got their hands on the means of intercepting and interpreting German naval messages between Donitz and his wolf packs, which leads to the deeds of May 9, 1941, by the British Royal Navy. It was Churchill that coined the phrase, the Battle of the Atlantic. No surprise there, as his gift for words is well known. But in those five words hung in the balance the survival of the British home island and much of her empire. And it was a battle, and it was all about survival. By the end of 1940, Berlin was able to put out an additional 10 subs each month. Unsurprisingly, this led to more and more Allied shipping, either merchantmen or escorts, being parked in port, needing repairs. For his part, Churchill, who was really a 19th century warrior, preferred a straight-on battle rather than all this cloak-and-dagger business under the waves. He told the First Lord of the Admiralty at the opening of 1941, how willingly would I have exchanged a full-scale attempt at invasion for this shapeless, meaningless peril expressed in charts, curves, and statistics. Yet it was those very charts, curves, and statistics that showed London was losing this war. Worse, they would soon lose the ability to feed themselves. And with more U-boats coming online, something had to give. 
and that something, London decided, would be the breaking of the Nazi Enigma Naval Code. To be able to outfight an opponent is preferable, but knowing how and when and with what they are going to attack you is almost as good. At least you can take your relatively fewer resources and apply them to maximize power in offense or defense. The results can be impressive. The people at Bletchley Park in Hut 8 in the country house in Bedfordshire have been working around the clock to crack the Enigma Code, specifically the German naval codes, as the codes of the Wehrmacht and the Luftwaffe had already been broken. But as the island was worried over starvation, the enemy's naval code was the golden key to so much that had to happen before victory was even possible. Yet, ironically, the Nazis had already broken the British Royal Naval Codes, even before the war broke out in Europe. Thus was the Royal Navy's messages being read, and they were none the wiser. The BDist, the German version of Bletchley Park, stationed in the town of Eberswald, some 25 kilometers northeast of Berlin, was doing good work. But they would have to eventually leave the town and move somewhere else as the British bombardment increased. As for how the Germans were able to read British naval codes, that story begins, as most stories do, with Mussolini. After getting comfortable with being in power, Mussolini, El Duce, told the world he was going to rebuild the Roman Empire. And where was he going to start? In Abyssinia, modern-day Ethiopia. Fast forward to 1935, Italian troops were being built up on the doorstep of Emperor Haile Selassie's relatively weak African country. Mussolini was counting on a short war to have it over before the League of Nations could do anything to interfere. It didn't hurt that Britain and France had already promised Italy they would not sell modern weapons to Abyssinia. Capitalist countries have a tendency to help each other out when suppressing smaller nations. In truth, at least London did not want the headache of upsetting the rather emotional Mussolini and thus having to move military equipment around, which costs money. At the time, the UK was in a hard way, as anything touching the military was not popular, in most countries as well, due to the horror of the Great War whereas France was slowly but surely imploding, which would culminate with its downfall in just six weeks' time to the Nazis. In response to the Italians invading Abyssinia in October of 1935, the British Navy went into high gear. First, there was Malta to worry about. To protect it, C&C Mediterranean Fleet Sir William Fisher moved ships to Alexandria, Egypt, to be within striking range. Also, British ships were sent to the new British naval yard located at Aden, or Aden, Yemen, along the southern coast. Specifically, the cruiser Dunedin, Norfolk, and Emerald made for Aden from other parts of the world, while the Ajax, Exeter, and the cruiser Sussex sailed for Alexandria. These cruisers were followed by destroyers. In a relatively short time, the Mediterranean island and the coast of the southern Arabian Peninsula was in reinforced British hands. In short, the British and Admiral Fisher were ready for war should the Italians choose to escalate the conflict 
They wouldn't, at least at this moment. But more importantly, all those naval vessels at Aden started using their wartime codes. Normally, the British Royal Navy uses a five-digit cipher, hence five numbers, to denote a letter or punctuation mark. But it was this very system that one Wilhelm Traunau, a German codebreaker, had been working on for 20 years. Between his diligent study and knowing the movements of the various British warships, because it was always in the newspaper, he was able to eventually break the code. All well and good, but during war, the British Navy switched to a four-digit code, and they did so now, as war seemed imminent. And the British messages, even with the new code, were being picked up by a listening station in the southern German town of Villingen. The men working with Tranau at the BDNist got to work and found that they could unwrap the five-number code, which left the still-scrambled four-number code, underneath. But again, the newspapers listed all the British warships heading to Alexandria and Aden, and with that knowledge, Tranau was able to figure out which codes went with which ship. Of course, this was only possible as he had been studying these codes for 20 years. The institutional knowledge he had picked up along the way made the difference. The following year, the Civil War in Spain started up, and with British ships sitting off the country's coast, Tranau and company were able to work through the rest of the coding. By the time 1936 came to a close, the Royal Navy's wartime code had been completely cracked. Across the English Channel, London had its own Tranau. His name was Alfred Dillwyn Dilly Knox. He went to Cambridge, befriended John Maynard Quignes, and tutored the future Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan. Impressive, yes. However, he was so shy, his unofficial name was Erm, because that's what he said more than anything else. Also, he liked to recite Milton's Paradise Lost while driving. Again, fine. But during the more emotional moments of the poem, he would let go of the steering wheel to really get into it. And he basically lived off of coffee and chocolate. So while hurricanes and spitfires took on the Luftwaffe, as the Royal Navy engaged the Kriegsmarine, while Tommies clashed with Jerry's, behind and underneath them all, Tranau and Dilly had their own battles. But what they could achieve might change the war. <laughs> 